Sit back and listen and enjoy my podcast about health, wellness, fitness, yoga, business, and life. I talk about everything from ways of eating healthy, mindfulness, yoga, working out, manifesting, to pop culture, momming, adulting. I try to have fun and laugh at myself along the way of my sometimes stressed out and frazzled life. This is Fit, Fun, and Frazzled, and I am your host, Nikki Lanigan. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with and meeting Eddie Stern. He is a yoga teacher, an author, a lecturer. He's from New York City. He's been practicing yoga since 1987. He's the author of One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. He also has a free app called the Breathing App, which guides the users in a paced breathing exercise that balances the nervous system to help improve sleep, reduce stress, and anxiety. In today's episode, we talk about his book. We talk about yoga and the science of it and what it does to our brain. He takes us and guides us through a breathing technique. We touch on teacher burnout and ways to help with that. He, it was a pleasure getting to meet him and talk with him, and I'm so honored that he wanted to sit down and talk with me on my podcast. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. Thank you. Now I hear you. You hear me? Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. I have no idea what happened. Um, well, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. No problem. Um, the first time I heard of you, I was listening to the Goop podcast, and um, you talked about um, your book, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. Um, I'm a yoga instructor. Um, but I, I struggle with meditation and reading this and doing the breathing exercises has really helped me. So, yeah, um, I've done um, some research on you. So I know, um, let's start off and tell the listeners, um, you're from Brooklyn, New York, and you were on the rock scene. No, I'm from New York City, Manhattan. New York State, okay. No, no um, I'm from Manhattan, from Manhattan. Manhattan, okay. Yeah. And you were in the rock scene? I was a, in the punk rock scene in the 1980s. Oh, how did you come, how did you get into yoga then and find yoga? Um, you know, I simply met someone who was uh, practicing and um, I, it sounded like a really good way to live. So I thought I would try it. Um, I wasn't particularly healthy. So it was a big, um, a big turnaround for me. It was great. Yeah. And then so, you went to India to practice yoga in India? Yes, in 1988. Okay. Um, and I know you're big into Ashtanga yoga and I live in Ohio and there's not really any yoga studios here that do that. But when I was doing my training, I did one class and I loved it. So I tried to find them online to do yeah. it. But um, is that where you did in India, you found Ashtanga? Ashtanga yoga or you I knew did. that before? No, I didn't know it before. I started with a type of yoga called Shivananda yoga. And then after a few years of Shivananda yoga, then I found Ashtanga yoga around 1991, 1992. Oh. Um, 
So I a few years of other practices beforehand. Okay. Um, so when you think um, how far yoga has come, come you know, people think um, hippies do it and now um, it's pretty much a lot more mainstream. And I think even now so more with um, the global pandemic going on, I feel like more people have started a at-home yoga practice. Um, what, what do you think of that? Like, does that... Well, I think, I think it's great. Um, you know, yoga is good. Yeah. Yoga is generally speaking, generally speaking, it's good for people. And um, it helps people, it makes them feel better, it helps them to deal with stress, uh, it helps them to get more connected, it's great for um, some people to help them sleep, for improving digestion, for staying flexible or fit, for being spiritually connected, it does all of these types of things. It's good for the nervous system, good for the immune system, there's a, a million positive benefits for yoga. I think it's good that more people are doing it. And I think that especially during the lockdowns of the pandemic, it's an excellent way for people to occupy themselves because um, you know, you you keep fine-tuning your your body, your mind, your nervous system while you're in the midst of a challenging situation. That's important to have a tool like that. Yeah. So the fact that there's so much yoga online is wonderful because it really gives people a way to access it if otherwise they might not be able to. Mm -hmm. I actually, when the lockdown first started like a year ago, um, found my own practice again. And I was able to actually really start practicing again and not just teaching it. Um, turning towards your book, do you mind if I read just a paragraph that really resonated with me when um, I first read it and I try to read it to my students a lot, um, especially like beginners. So they know like this is, yoga is for everyone. Please. <laughs> um, why, why was it that a person with back pain, another with hypertension, another with poor digestion, others searching for meaning in their lives could all walk into the same yoga class, do the same basic thing and walk out not only feeling better, but feeling like what was troubling them or the condition that they had was improving. How by doing one simple thing, one generalized yoga practice were people able to reduce stress, ease body pains, improve cardiovascular function, reduce diabetes medication, feel happier, get angry less often and improve their sleep and digestion. That just really kind of basically sums it up, you know, um, what, how good yoga really is. Yeah, it's amazing how it works that way that, um, you know, I, I, what I think it is, although we can't be exactly sure, but what I think it is, is that we have this mechanism called homeostasis, which is our body's ability to restore balance. And it's, and it's restoring balance like every second of the day. That's what homeostasis does. And it takes up a lot of our energy also. Um, body temperature, blood pH, maintaining respiratory rates, heart rate, blood pressure. Uh, you know, there's so many things that homeostasis is monitoring. And when we are out of balance, homeostasis has a harder time bringing us back into balance unless we support it. Um, but if we continually do things to disrupt our, you know, this innate ability, 
then things are going to be more difficult. So take for the example digestion. Our body has an innate ability to digest food and for us to eat, for it to nourish, and then to eliminate. And for most people, you know, as long as you eat well and you do a little of exercise and you're generally healthy, like these functions will happen normally. Um, now you can take a person who these functions happen normally for, and then maybe at a certain point they start eating really unhealthy food. Instead of eating food which is easily digestible, they start eating a lot of junk food or a lot of fried food or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden digestion's not working so well and uh, elimination is not working so well. And then other things start to happen like the body might start to gain weight or collect fat in the organs or all sorts of things can begin to happen. Um, and so now what's happening is we had this innate function of nourishment and elimination, which now isn't able to work well because we've been messing it up. So then we have to stop messing it up so it works well again. So what happens with, I think with yoga, and this is to reference the paragraph you just read, was that our body will help us, you know, come back to a balanced point if we support it. And so if we do something like yoga and we give ourselves some time to rest and like relaxation positions at the end of classes, et cetera, at that moment, we're supporting this internal function. And now the internal function is going to know what needs to be fixed because it has space, it has support, and it's gonna say, oh, your blood pressure is high, we're just gonna bring it back down a little or right. your digestive power is low, so we're just gonna put a little bit of energy there or you know your back muscles were tight but now they're released so you're going to feel blood circulation again um you know you had a lot of tension so you had a headache but now the tension is gone so we can restore blood flow you know wherever so that's basically what happens like the body knows what to do if we support it if we don't support the body then things are going to go wrong we're going to suffer we're going to get sick we're going to have problems and a lot of the times it's our fault not all the time Right. Generally, generally, generally speaking, a lot of the time it's like our fault because we haven't been taking care of ourselves. So the yogi suggested just a few simple things to do that we can all adapt into our lives. They said, you should do some exercise like yoga postures. You should do some conscious breathing practices like pranayama. You should do a little bit of meditation to, you know, connect inwardly to quiet space in yourself. You should eat clean and healthy food, whatever you can digest. You should get enough sleep every night um, and have a sleeping schedule, like a sleeping rhythm that you follow along with. And you should also spend time with people who support you living a healthy, happy, emotionally balanced lifestyle. Just do like some of those things, not obsessively, just do them. And you find that you feel better. Your life flows better. You're more connected to meaning and purpose within your own life for the things that you need to do. You can feel more effective or more creative or, you know, more open to sharing your feelings, whatever it might be. But we need yeah. to support that. We need to take active steps to support it or it doesn't, it doesn't happen spontaneously. Mm -hmm. um, in your book, you talk about the polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve. Can you touch on that a bit? Sure. The polyvagal theory is a theory that was proposed by Dr. Stephen Porges. And what he basically was saying was that the vagus nerve has this um, hierarchy to it. 
and it responds to the world in a very predictable manner. Um, we have one area of our nervous system which is going to respond to the world in terms of safety, one in terms of threat, and one in terms of immobilization, where we totally freeze. The vagus nerve itself makes up 80% of our parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system is related to cellular repair, restoration, uh, the process of digestion and the process of rest or, or of sleeping. And it's also related to any kind of calming activities, any um, anti-inflammatory type activities of the body. So things that are like cooling and restful things that are nourishing are going to be related to the parasympathetic branch. And um, the sympathetic nervous system is going to be related to things that move us towards activity. Like an inhale, for example, the lungs expand and we get energy when we inhale. Even just saying inhale makes you want to sit up straight. Yeah, I just did. <laughs> that's a movement, that's an expansion towards activity. And mm -hmm. relaxation. Ah, you can just rest, you know, you're in a calm, quiet zone. So our breathing patterns are a constant interplay between, you know, expressions of these branches of our nervous system. Blinking the eyes, the peristalsis, um, you know, the, the pulsation of, the, uh, of our retinas. We have all these tiny little micro patterns within us that are responding to expansion and contraction, expansion and contraction. You know, the universe as well expands and contracts. Everything in nature expands and contracts. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a pattern we have within us. Um, and so um, what happens in busy societies and in modern worlds like we live in, but this has been going on for a long time, is that our nervous system responds to environmental demands. What we need to respond to, how much we need to do, is what our nervous system will respond to. And um, if you live a life where there's a lot of demand on you, there might come a point where your nervous system has an overload of information because that's what it is. Our nervous systems are information highways. Um, they're transmitting messages all the time and uh, they're maintaining order. So our nervous system is organizing the communication between every cell in our body in conjunction with signals that are coming from the quote unquote outside world. What's the temperature like? Um, what time of day is it? Is it nighttime? Do I need to send signals through the nervous system of sleep? Is it the morning time? Is it time to send signals you know, through a hormonal release of it's time to wake up? Um, is there danger? Do I need to send out signals of adrenaline to make me flee from um, something which could threaten my existence? So this is one of the things that the nervous system is doing in conjunction with the endocrine system. And when the load is too much, then the nervous system begins to perceive the incoming load as threatening all the time. An alert on the telephone, a text message from someone who you uh, said the wrong thing to, a, um, you know, uh, an unpaid yeah. notice whatever it might be, your kids haven't texted you and you're waiting for them you know, to text you after school. Where the hell are they? You yeah. <laughs> and so what happens is um, when the load gets too much, every single thing becomes a threatening response and your body keeps re releasing stress hormones. And even things that normally you could handle, they become difficult to handle. 
Uh, mm -hmm. and so it continues to go and go and go and go. So this is basically the, what they call the, um, the fight or flight response. Um, and this is the fight or flight response when it's gone a little bit out of control. It's become too much. It's called allostatic load. And um, so a lot of people are in this mode because life is hard. And uh, a lot of those people are the type of people who need to do yoga or meditate. So a lot of them end up in a yoga class because they think I have too much stress. You know, I need to learn how to relax or, you know, not too many people go to yoga thinking I'm going for a great workout. They hear the word yoga and they mm -hmm. think there's something that's going to help me inwardly. Um, and so, right. So the vagus nerve uh, is the relaxation response, basically. I mean, it's a very, very complicated thing, but we can say very simply, if the sympathetic nervous system is driving the information flows of a stress response, the parasympathetic nervous system is driving the information flow of relaxation response. And the yoga practices are going to target somehow this branch of our nervous system to uh, upregulate the relaxation response and dampen the allostatic load of the stress response. So it's not quite so inflamed. And um, that's what yoga does through breathing and through postures and through meditation and through deep rest at the end of class, especially. Um, that's going to help dampen the sympathetic. And as soon as the sympathetic is dampened a little, Parasympathetic can do its thing, like relaxation can just express itself. It's like, you know, when you stop mm -hmm. thinking and you finally go to sleep, it's not that you've willed yourself to go to sleep. It's that the thing that's keeping you awake has stopped keeping you awake. And now sleep comes naturally. Um, so we have to set the condi right, right conditions basically for sleep to come. Yeah. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you mind doing a quick breathing technique? With us. Sure. I'd be happy to. You're not putting me on the spot. That's my job to say. <laughs> my job Can you do a little stretch? That's what I have to do. So, um, all right. First thing is, please sit comfortably. Um, you can be sitting straight, but you don't have to be sitting super straight. And uh, for folks at home, you cannot. You can be in a chair. Like I'm sitting in a chair right now. I'm not sitting on the floor. This is my chair. See, I have an arm right there, my daughter's clothes on the floor. So you can sit in a chair, you can sit on your bed, you can sit on the floor, you can lie on your back if you want to doing this with your knees bent and your feet on the floor, uh, any comfortable position for you. And if you'd like, you can close your eyes and you can, um, and if you don't wanna close your eyes, you can keep your eyes a little open, but just gaze down towards your hands and your lap. And the first thing you can do is just become aware that you're breathing. Feel your breath coming in and out from your nostrils. And when you become aware that you're breathing, your breathing might change a little. All of a sudden it might get a little longer or you might breathe higher into your chest. Any number of things could happen. It doesn't matter what happens. All that we're concerned with right now is that you are aware that you are a breathing being. You feel the breath coming and going. You 
Maybe aware of the breath now without trying to change it too, too much. And one of the ways to do that is to feel the sensation of your breath on the insides of your nostrils. Now begin to slightly elongate your breath by about one second at the end of your inhale and one second at the end of your exhale. Very gradual elongation. So you're not breathing a deep breath. You're just breathing a slightly longer breath. Now begin to enjoy the sensation of your incoming breath, like you would enjoy your favorite song, like you would enjoy your favorite piece of music or art, or even your favorite poem. you like classical music, you can enjoy the incoming breath as much as you would enjoy listening to a Bach cello sonata or a Beethoven piece or anyone who you like. If you like rock music, you can enjoy your breath like you enjoy your favorite Rolling Stones song or your favorite David Bowie song. So that way the enjoyment of the breath isn't associated with just trying to breathe deep, but it's associated with some other sensory experience. Okay, so now for one minute, we'll inhale for a slow count of six seconds. And we'll exhale for a count of six. Inhale for six. And exhale for six. Do that three more times on your own. To your third time, just let the breathing relax and sit quietly for a moment. Let the breath fall into any natural pattern. 
See if you feel an inward settling of your mind. And then rub your palms together gently till you feel them become a little warm. And then place the hands over the face, the eyes, maybe over your throat. Rub the hands down the arms and the legs. And then keeping your gaze slightly down, you can open the eyes, looking towards your hands. And then you can look up. Thank you. I feel so much more relaxed. <laughs> Um, what do you think about teacher burnout? I know recently a lot of my yogi teacher friends have experienced it this past year, which is weird because we haven't been able to teach as much, but I think it's because we've tried to adapt in other ways. Tell me, so what do you think is happening? I think we're trying to teach too much online and not practice ourselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're not taking care of ourselves and practicing self-care. Yeah. What are the burnout um, uh, symptoms that you're experiencing or that your friends are experiencing? Um, my anxiety is higher. Mm -hmm. um, and I snap more with my kids. I don't have as much patience as I used to. Yeah. And the same is with my, like my yoga friends too. Mm -hmm. And um, do you, do you think that it's from over teaching or do you think that it's just the conditions of the pandemic are starting to wear down on everyone collectively? I think it's both mm -hmm. probably. Yeah. Cause we all had a shift and teach our kids at home and my kids though right now in Ohio they're back in school right now um so I have that but um yeah I think I everyone started to teach more teaching than what they were used to when they were only teaching at a studio and do you think that while you're teaching during these times when people struggle so much do you feel that you're um uh taking on um, too much responsibility for other people's healing journey? Yes. Mm -hmm. You're taking yes. on stress and people's anxiety on yourself when you're teaching. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that happens. Um, that's, um, it can be natural as a, as a teacher or instructor in something which is supposed to be healing that you want people to feel better. And so you take things of theirs on to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that will be exhausting. That will tire you out for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, with all types of um, practices that are in the realm of I don't want to say the word healing because healing it happens spontaneously through nature when the conditions are right. But when we're involved in practices that are supposed to help set these conditions for healing to occur, 
Um, I, I prefer to call yoga a contemplative practice um, rather than a healing practice. Um, mm -hmm. But when we look at it at these in these other ways in regards to self-care and stuff like that, when we want someone to feel better, we might extend ourselves further out to try to help them do that. And um, then we're kind of superimposing ourselves on the situation rather than just simply giving a, a technique, a practice, setting the conditions for them to receive whatever benefits that they do. Um, and to do that, you need to have Number one, um, a, a steady long-term practice that you've been doing and that is part of your nervous system because you've been doing it for such a long time. Um, and making a practice part of you, part of your nervous system, part of your cellular makeup, part of your emotional makeup means that now you know who you are in that. You have this thing has become part of you. The practice has become part of you and you've become part of the practice. And then, therefore, when you teach it, you're not giving yourself away because you remain you. All you're doing is passing on a technique or a word or a methodology. So that requires um, some, you know, not just time, but it also requires some like mental or emotional shift to how you approach the thing that you're doing. And, and it also requires the setup of healthy boundaries. And a healthy boundary is you know, not like where you draw a line, line between yourself and someone else. It just means that you don't take onto yourself what is not yours. And you don't put your thing onto another person so they make it theirs. And this is what a lot of, you know, very charismatic teachers or leaders will do. They will superimpose themselves on their students, their devotees, their disciples, their whatever, so that the student, devotee, disciple, or whatever the condition is, has um, a, uh, a glorified view of who they are um, because this person has superimposed themselves on that. And that's not what a teacher is supposed to do. Um, a teacher is not supposed to set themselves in a condition where they are a rarefied being and the student is a, a, a non-rarefied being. So that's when a teacher will impose themselves on a student. And the other way is when a, a teacher allows the student to impose themselves on top of them. And then the teacher and the student becomes the, the one whose every, every little thing is so important. And then we take that on and we become bear the brunt of that. So it can go both ways. Um, but what we want it to be, because all we're doing, all you and I do is we're just like yoga instructors. That's all. We're not like spiritual leaders. You know, we're not anything. We're just yeah. teaching a technique. And just, just in that, that's, that's like not a big deal. All we have to do is be saying, this is what you do. Breathe here. Put this here. Think about this. Feel this. Good. Boom. You're done. Time to go. And um, so that kind of a, of a maturity inwardly is very yeah. helpful because you can love what you do, you can love your students, but you don't take the responsibility for what happens to them in their practice. Uh, your responsibility right. is to be a safe, attentive, caring teacher, but your responsibility is not for their outcome. Um, 
they're, they're going, whatever their outcome from the practice is, is going to be whatever needs to happen for them. But what happens with us sometimes is as teachers, we want their outcome to be good. Did you have a good practice? Was that a good class? Did you feel relaxed? You know, all of these things, you know, we want people to leave happier. Um, and, but the yoga is supposed to take care of that. We're not supposed to take care of that. The yoga is, do you see the, the distinction there? Right, yes. And if yoga is a practice which has been happening for a long time, that means yoga is good. And it's been passed down through people who've been taking care of it. And mm -hmm. generally, it's a good thing. But then all of a sudden, if we think we're the owners of it and we're and we get concerned with, did you have a good practice? Did that feel good for you? You know, are you happier? Oh, is your pain gone? You know, and it's not, and they're not happy after class. And then we think, oh, I'm a bad teacher, or oh, that wasn't a good class, or yeah. oh, you know, all those things. I felt all those things myself, obviously. Um, then we get tired and then teaching becomes a chore. Uh, yeah. we, lose the, we lose the thread of what does it mean to be a teacher? You know, what does it, what does yoga mean to me? You lose touch with what yoga means to you in that state. And it's not difficult to reclaim it. All you have to do is back off from teaching, take some time off, um, you know, get back into your practice, um, study a little more, read a little more, spend time with people who know more than we do and learn from them. And um, then you re reinvigorate yourself. And it doesn't take a lot to, as long as you're not terribly burned out, it shouldn't yeah. take long to reinvigorate yourself. Um, and then you can go back in with a, with a more caring mind and you set a schedule for yourself, which is manageable for you, not mm -hmm. over. You know, one of the things that is difficult now also is like, for example, when I started teaching yoga, yoga was not a profession. And I say this again and again and again, like yoga was not a profession. It was something that you, you learned how to teach. That was a privilege. And then you taught as service. The word seva in Sanskrit means service, which means to do things, something without the expectation of any reward. And that's how we taught yoga in the 1980s, at least how I was trained to teach yoga. And that made you feel really good because you weren't getting paid. Uh -huh ever getting paid. The students would pay yoga school to go take a class there. And that was to support the yoga school, but the teachers at Shivananda or wherever, we weren't paid. We did it happily as service. It was a privilege. And um, so therefore there was like, um, you know, a lot less of this sort of um, feelings of burnout because it wasn't a livelihood. And then later that all changed and now yoga is a massive industry and it's a, you know, it's a profession like waiting tables. You know, you do a, a, a short training for not very many hours and, um, and then you're thrust out into the world being told that you can teach yoga. But really, you don't know anything. I mean, even my first teacher training was a month long and we would get up at five in the morning, we'd have meditation at six, we'd do all sorts of practices till, 8 or 10 p.m. or 9 p.m., go to sleep, get up the next day, start again. But through the course of the month, that's really only a 200-hour training. And then when you're ready to go teach um, after you graduate, if they feel that you're eligible, then you can could teach in some of the Shivananda Yoga Centers. But you still had guidance. You had a support system. You know, you were still attending other classes, so you were learning. 
and um, and there was like you know there was an involvement towards what you could become later. But first, you started off with just beginners. Um, even starting off with beginners, you know, you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. You don't know anything. So, um, you know, that's um, it's so. In some regards, it's not that different now that a 200-hour training is all you need to be a yoga teacher. Um, but what is different is now you might take a 200-hour training thinking you are a yoga teacher and this will become a profession. A lot of people take yoga teacher trainings to increase their knowledge of yoga. That's very admirable. There should be other ways of doing it aside from teacher training programs. Um, but to become a, a teacher um, of this, I think, requires a lot more training than that, a lot more practice. Um, at least, you know, two to three years of your own personal practice. And then, you know, maybe some other type of more in, intense study for a year or so. Uh, and then learning the actual techniques of teaching don't take that long. It's not that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, it's not that hard to teach the techniques of yoga if you know how a body fits together and where the parts should go. We can do it. But what we really need to learn is what is yoga. And to understand what yoga is means you have to have a little bit of an internal shift of your own consciousness, at least a little bit of a shift. And, and that takes some time. Uh, my uh, One of my teachers in India who I studied with for a long time said it usually takes between six to 10 years um, before that shift occurs. And the reason is, is repetition. You need to do something roughly about a thousand times before you get a little bit of understanding of what that thing is that you are doing. You know, with a mantra, usually you have to repeat a mantra anywhere from like, say, 200,000 to 400,000 times before it starts having an effect on you. And you need to do any one asana at least a thousand times before it has an effect, before you understand what it is. And, um, this is, you know, not something I made up. It's something you hear a lot in the in the Indian traditions and in the Hindu tradition. Now, here's something interesting. If you do one asana or the same asana a thousand times, that means that you'll be doing it for um, about three years because we have 365 days in a year. So mm-hmm. 365 times three is going to be, you know, a little over a thousand days. Um, and... Um, you know, that gives you an idea of the minimum amount of time you might want to take before you start transmitting something. Right. Yeah. That's good. That's yeah. interesting. That's a very good way to put it in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you're going to wait, you know, 10 years before you start teaching, that's basically like 10,000 hours of practice, you know, in that yeah which is what people like to talk about. Now, I don't believe in the 10,000 hour thing. Um, I, I don't believe in the 10,000 hour thing because I think that, um, it, you know, I understand conceptually how it works, but if you do 9,000 of those hours and you're not paying attention to what you're doing, then it might not work. So you just need to yeah. do as many hours necessarily <laughs> until it spontaneously works. But I'm just giving a, a popular cultural example of duration of time for mastery. Um, and I think yoga is a topic worthy of our respect. 
and worthy of our humility and modesty that it's a long-term thing and if we give it that level of respect i think that the whole yoga scene in america can really elevate itself um that's all we need to apply to it you know just the, mm -hmm. just that just that yeah well thank you so much for taking your time out today to come on this podcast with us and i really appreciate it it was really great talking to you and getting to meet you well thanks for having me uh i hope that was helpful for you it was very much so thank you so um definitely um i hope that all of your yoga teaching friends recover quickly from their teacher burnout it does happen it's happened thank to you it's happened to me uh it happened to me most notably in 1991 um when um i um was just you know uh, at the end of 1991 and it was actually at a point where the school i was at started paying us as teachers and um that that switch was helpful in me losing touch with the purpose of yoga for me like what i was doing i started over teaching and 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 just things like i started feeling i lost was losing touch i stopped teaching for a year and a half and went to india and um, and just was a practitioner again, and that was that was enough of an imprint on me to remember. Okay, you know when you start feeling this way, that means you need to shift this way and take care of it. Yeah. So thank you again. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye.